0: Father, we approach you with no facades, no masks. We're not trying to act as if you can't see through all that. You see our hearts better than we see our hearts. This is not merely another day, another sermon. There are souls hanging in the balance. Heaven and hell. Life and death. For some... Perseverance hangs in the balance. If you don't give it to these people, they will not make it. We feel the weight of this hour, the importance of this moment. We are a desperate people, we are a needy people, we are a rocked people, disoriented, shook. We are a dirty people. Our sins, they are many. Your mercies are more. Our doubts, they are numerous. Your assurance, it is more. Our wounds, they are deep. Your gospel healing, it is deeper. We plead with you to meet with an undeserving people. Set an appointment on your calendar to meet with us in your word. God, I have nothing of value to give these dear people apart from this text. You said your word would be milk and meat for your people, so I didn't bring donuts and a latte. These people need more than a sugar rush. They need hearty sustenance that will sustain them when they enter a world that hates the Christ they follow. Father, I'm not making this meal. I'm simply bringing it to the table. I'm the butler, you're the chef. Now, you know where we are, we are dry. We are wandering. Our lips are parched. Our stomachs are growling. Our souls stomach. Spread a banquet in the wilderness. Let our parched lips drink this milk of your word. Let our souls experience the meat that's needed to sustain us. We open your word now with eager anticipation because we do believe these words dropped from your lips. We hunger for your word, this moment more than we've ever hungered before. Our mouths are watering. Our souls are anticipating. Our hearts are leaping. This is the moment we've been waiting for all week. Our blessed privilege to sit under the preached word. The responsibility is now ours. To remain attentive and undistracted. To possess disciplined minds. Even before we feast, we thank you for this meal spread before us. Help us to take our time with it and savor every bite. This is our corporate plea. Amen. I bring you from 1 Corinthians 11, covered heads and broken bread. This is often the proof text for why men shouldn't wear hats in church and why women should wear head coverings. (laughs) Even if those head coverings turn into elaborate hats like women wear to the Kentucky Derby, those fascinators, half hats that are floral arrangements for the head, they can become quite the spectacle, sometimes bigger than the head they are on. And they they look like wonderful places for birds to live. (laughs) Some of these churches in England that obey this text and wear those hats to corporate worship just make me laugh. When Paul spoke about head coverings, he was not talking about those elaborate monstrosities that are on your head. Think about the poor man sitting behind you in church. He can't see anything. Certain times of the season... Bees flying around your head. (laughs) Toucans trying to find a place to nest. It it can become distracting. The head covering in our text is not a hat you wear to a horse race or a fascinator you wear to the coronation of a king or queen. It's not surprising that we take God's commands and try to use them for attention-grabbing opportunities. When you come to a text like this, where God is killing people at the communion table and covering the head of women, you must tread with caution and wisdom. We do not set the agenda for what we talk about. God does. We walk through books of the Bible verse by verse. This entire chapter provides teaching about what happens when the church gathers corporately for worship. It centers around issues related to behavior in church meetings. There are two movements in the text. Honoring headship and public worship, chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Honoring one another at the Lord's table, chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Honoring headship and public worship. Honoring one another at the Lord's table. Our study of this text will pose some interesting Questions, if women are covering their heads in this church, why aren't women covering their heads in our church? If the Lord's table is a big feast in this church, why is it a small cracker and a little juice in our church? Should we no longer call it the Lord's supper, but the Lord's appetizer? And why are you, non-Christian, needing to hear any of this? Well, because you are actually in the text. In fact, the head covering thing was a message to you. And you have a command about the table. There is something for you in the head covering and the table. How good of our God to give not only the Christian teaching, but the non-Christian teaching. Instruction for the believer and the non-believer. The insider and the outsider. Here's what that says. God's not surprised that you are here. You are expected in these gatherings. God's people are not running around frantic like, oh, snap, a big group of non-Christians just showed up. What are we supposed to do? You are expected in the church at Corinth, and you are expected in this church. Now, Faith Family Church, we've got a lot of text and not enough time, so let's get after it. Verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Paul is praising the church for two things. Remembering him and keeping his teaching. They had previously written to Paul asking questions. Some doctrinal and some practical. They remembered him. Went to him with questions three to five years after he left the church. They maintained his teaching. Keep, Greek, katiko, where we get our word catechism. They kept his teaching and did not corrupt it. He commends them for it. In other words, you're doing some things right. And you need to hear that. Because I'm about to let you know some things you are doing wrong. I commend you, verse 2. I do not commend you, verse 3 and verse 17. Verse 17 uses those very words, I do not commend you. I salute you for doing well in these two areas. I give you no salute in these other two areas. Paul starts on a positive note, congratulating believers, and now moves to a negative note, rebuking believers. I do not commend what your women are doing. I do not commend what's taking place at the table. Verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a woman is her husband. The head of Christ is God. This serves as a theological foundation for the instruction he's going to give them. Paul will press the headship analogy. He will reveal order and where there needs to be submission. Man submits to Christ, that's the order. Wife submits to husband, that's the order. Christ submits to the father, that's the order. Now if you are looking for a scholar to explain away the plain meaning of the text, you can easily find one. They will say the head language does not mean authority. It means source. Christ is the source of man. Man is the source of woman. The father is the source of the son. They contest there is no authority involved in this verse. The problem is, never does the Bible use the word head to refer to the source of anything. Never. In every place it means authority. And these chronological snobs say things like, the church has gotten it wrong through the centuries. And until us enlightened people came along to properly interpret the text, it was wrongly interpreted for 2,000 years. Saying the father is the head of the son does not mean inequality. Head does not mean, it does not signify superior worth. Just as in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are equally divine, equally worthy. Man and woman are equal in value, worth, and dignity. Saying a husband is the head of his wife is not chauvinistic. It's not arrogant. If you say it is, you must then say it is chauvinistic of the Father to be the head of Christ. Jesus himself was not autonomous. He had to submit to the Father. Submission does not mean the wife is inferior to her husband or that Christ is inferior to the Father. Jesus Christ didn't consider submission beneath him. He gave glad submission to loving authority. He voluntarily and joyfully submitted to the Father. Jesus doesn't think submission is a dirty word. He loves it. In marriage, there is one head. Two-headed creatures do exist, but they never survive for very long. Two-headed marriages never thrive and seldom survive. Now, now that that foundation is laid, Paul is going to deal with proper adornment in public worship. For men and women, he will start with the men. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Let's stop there. This is not about wearing a ball cap in service. In Roman societies, men pulled their togas over their heads when they officiated religious cults. Paul didn't want the men in the church to be mistaken for cult members. We don't want to bring cult practices into the church. He had a deep concern to safeguard Christian worship. Verse 5. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. The head covering was an important piece of clothing in the Corinthian culture. Throughout history, headdress has carried symbolic or literal meaning. In Roman Corinth, it communicated you were married. When I say veil... Don't think of a Muslim veil that covers everything but the eyes. Think of a shawl or a scarf. It seemed to be a little thin piece of cloth. Or a woolen band around the head signaling to the public that you are off the market. When Paul tells the women in the church they should veil, he's saying honor your husband as the loving authority in your life. When the wife veils, she testifies and gives witness to the goodness and rightness of God's design in marriage. It's a visible indicator of her submission. The veil became a way she could dishonor her husband or a way she could bring honor and glory to her husband. Refusing to wear the veil signaled independence from her husband. She insulted his leadership by that act she published her unsubmissiveness. Now, I'm going to continue to build on this veil teaching. Contextually, this unveiling seemed to be more than just a social indicator of the marital submissiveness to her husband. Charles Hodge said, For a woman to discard the veil in Corinth was to renounce her claim to modesty and to refuse to recognize her subordination to her husband. In my prep, I I always read doctrinal commentaries and then cultural books on the ancient city. This one book said, of all the excavated statues and carvings of Roman women in Corinth, all the women had had a head covering on except for one. And these are not just women in the church, but women in the street. In, in, in that one case that a woman was found without a head covering was believed to be with her husband in her home. They were sculpted while in their home. The, the unveiled hair was one of the chief signs of sexual immodesty in Roman culture. Theselton says it allowed men to size her up as a woman who might be propositioned or available. This covering seemed to be a matter of decorum. It was a public mark of respectability. It's how you show propriety, that you are an honorable woman. It communicated to others that she is chaste, modest, and she intends to stay that way. It was widely regarded as a disgrace for a woman not to wear the veil in public. Verse 6, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Paul argues, if the woman refuses to wear the cultural symbol of the veil, then she might as well shave her head. Temple prostitutes in Corinth shave their heads. If you refuse to wear the cultural symbol of modesty, you might as well shave your head like a prostitute. You can say a lot of things about Paul. What you can't say is that he is afraid to offend people. He goes up in this church guns a-blazing. Chrysostom, who lived in the 5th century, said a woman's shaved head indicated adultery or prostitution prior to Paul's time. While Lucian, who lived in the 2nd century, indicates that that after Paul's time it was a mark of lesbianism. Ellsworth writes, the only women who didn't wear veils were mistresses and prostitutes. Paul says, women in the church, it's the sign of a prostitute to go around with an uncovered head. I don't want that cultural scandal in the worship service. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. If man covers his head in worship, he's concealing his status. A woman must display her covering and a man must display his calling. The head of the home. In other words, build biblically ordered homes and biblically ordered churches. Verse 8. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Paul appeals to the creation account. He's taking them to Genesis in this sermon. In the order of creation, God created Adam from dust, then created woman from a rib out of Adam. Adam created out of dust, woman created out of man. Both man and woman are created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. Verse 9 Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, this sounds hard in our cultural context. But it's beautiful because it came from God. Man is created first and is to be helped by the woman. Her chief aim in the marriage. How can I help him? Man was created first, which puts him in a position of authority over his wife. Verse 10. That is why the wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. The wife should have this symbol of submission on her head so as not to expose herself to indignity before the angels. Wait, angels? What's this comment about angels? Well, I'll tell you what I think it means and then I'll tell you what Mark Dever thinks it means. I think it means this church enters heaven during the corporate worship gathering. Angels are present. Angels are participants in worship. Perhaps there are angels all around us joining us as we adore the Lamb that redeemed us. When God is worshipped, other heavenly beings are present. Heaven is looking on. Women must not be unseemly before the angels wear the veil. Angels celebrate when we worship properly. Now that's what I think it means. Mark Dever thinks angel simply means messenger, and it could be translated that way. He thinks this speaks of spies sent from the Roman government. Rome kept an eye out on churches and wanted to make sure these Christians were not promoting these new disruptive ideas popping up in the Roman Empire. There appears to be a movement in this time where some emancipated Corinthian women dispensed of the veil in public, and it sent shockwaves around the empire. Apparently, that thinking that started outside of the church began to make inroads into the church. Paul didn't fear persecution. He feared the church's reputation being tarnished. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Men and women are not independent entities, but depend on one another. Paul is teaching from creation that man and woman have different roles but equal status, equal value, unique roles. And that would have been shocking in this day. Interdependence would have seemed scandalous to the Roman Empire. See, see, the Middle Eastern veiling of women seems to convey, convey social inequality or even inferiority. Not the case in the church. Men and women are distinct, but inseparable. We can't declare our independence from one another. They shouldn't live two separate lives, living in the same house, but running two different lives. That's not to happen. Both roles are complementary and interdependent. The fact is, we cannot exist without the other. We cannot flourish without the other. Verse 12, For as woman was made from man... So man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Woman first came from man, but now every man comes from woman. The first woman came from the rib of a man. Since then, every man has come from the womb of a woman. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Culturally, in the church, everyone would have said no. They knew it was rejecting the authority of her husband. How can can you pray to God when you're currently rejecting what God has asked of you? Verse 14. Does not nature itself teach you? Paul's here, would you? I want you to see that Paul argues first from shame, then he went to creation, now he's going to nature. Shame, creation, nature. He's arguing for women to wear this cultural symbol of modesty and submission. Let's pick it up, verse 14. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? By nature, Paul means universally accepted norms and customs. The hair of men and women are generally speaking quite different. Hair length was a part of the noticeable gender distinction. Nature hardwires this into us. In Corinth, outside of statues for deities, men did not have long hair. Spartans and Greek philosophers tended to have longer hair, but all the other men had shorter hair. How short? The text never reveals a precise length. It never tells how long a man's hair should should be. He's simply not to wear his hair in a way that presents himself as a woman. He should have a distinctively male haircut. Verse 15. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. Paul doesn't tell us how short is too short, how long is too long. We don't need to be prescribing specific hair length. This is about gender distinction. Wear your hair in a way that retains your femininity. 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, I imagine they were. (laughs) If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. In other words, don't bring your arguments to me. It's a warning against dissension. He knew they wouldn't like it. Surprise, surprise when the church in the middle of a pagan culture struggles when God's commands are antithetical to the culture. Paul says, you can be eager to argue and fight about this matter, but we have no other practice in any other New Testament church. You are capable of prolonging this battle indefinitely, but you need to submit to God. Now, FFC, with that exposition and no further comment, we need to start covering some heads around here. (laughs) I thought about asking Sarah to wear a head covering just to scare you when you came in. (laughs) Let me give you some head covering truths. Head covering truth number one. In this text, there is a timeless truth and a temporary expression. In this text, there is a timeless truth and a temporary expression. When Paul appeals to the order of creation, he does that not for the head covering, but for headship. Head coverings do not hold the same significance in each culture. The expression of submission and modesty may look different in every culture. Head covering, would you look here? Head covering, a cultural issue. Headship, a creation issue. I contest head covering was a specific custom pertinent to Corinth in the first century. It's a creation argument applied to a particular culture. There are significant cultural differences between us in the states and them in the first century Corinth. The cultural application of this text may vary when we take it to a a village, a village church in the Amazon jungles. If I thought this text truly called for head covering, I would teach it and encourage my wife to wear it. If we were the only people on the planet doing it, it wouldn't bother me. But I really do not believe that is what the text is calling for. The timeless truth, submit to your husband. The temporary expression, wear head coverings. The timeless truth. Submit to your husband. The temporary expression. Wear head coverings, just like the command to greet one another with a holy kiss, in Second Corinthians chapter thirteen verse twelve and First Thessalonians chapter five verse twenty six, just like that is a temporary expression of a timeless truth. So it is with this head covering issue. We do not tell our greeters to kiss each person on each cheek as they come through the door for corporate worship. That is not part of their responsibility. If they tell you it is, you come to us. (laughs) The charge is a cultural expression of a larger command of Christian love and gospel warmth. If you're going to be hermeneutically consistent and you practice wearing head coverings, then you need to greet everyone in the gathering with a holy kiss. For any churches that practice this or the Amish... I say this is a misunderstanding of this truth. The timeless truth and the temporary expression. Head covering truth number two. Every conservative scholar agrees on the timeless principle. There is some disagreement on the temporary expression. Every conservative scholar agrees on the timeless principle. There is some disagreement on the temporary expression. This passage has generated much discussion among biblical scholars. The complexity of it continues to vex some interpreters. And just like every debate in church history, it is best solved with one of my charts. (laughs) There are three positions on the veil to veil, not to veil, the hair is the veil. To veil, not to veil. The hair is the veil. Let's look at two veil. Who holds this position, two veil? R.C. Sproul, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Augustine, Tertullian, John Chrysostom, John Calvin, and Martin Luther. They're actually debated. They both commended women to to cover their heads in public assemblies, but both noted it was a matter of custom. Uh, Matthew Henry, John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, A.W. Pink, Charles Ryrie, John Murray, John Knox, William Tyndale, Mark Minnick, Qu- quite a few of, of these were in a culture and time where veiling was just prominent. Uh, R.C. Sproul, I think, gives the best argument that can be made for it, but I, I don't agree with it. But it is a tight argument. In all, in all these charts that I'm about to show you, I tried to pull people from the Gospel Coalition Circle, the Nine Mark Circle, the BJU Circle, the Ancient Circle, the Presby's, the Baptists. I tried to give you conservative scholars who land differently than where I do. If someone in this church in good conscience said, This is where I'll fall on it, then they are free to wear head coverings here. This is not something we're gonna pull off your head. One of my mentors, Stephen Davey, pastors in Cary, North Carolina, has a staff member and wife who hold to this conviction, and it's fine in the church. Now let's look at who holds to the veil, who holds to the other, the second position, not to veil, that it is a, a temporary custom. Stephen Lawson, Alistair Begg, Jonathan Edwards, John Piper, John MacArthur, the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, Wayne Grudem, Mark Dever, Tom Schreiner, all the pastors at FFC, Denny Burke, Stephen Davey, Ligon Duncan, Kevin DeYoung, Daniel Aiken, Tim Keller, D.A. Carson, Al Moeller, James Hamilton. Basically, any, any known writer and author that is not in the first column, not on the first chart, this is, this is their view. Now... There is a group who says the hair is the veil. That that there's really no veil anywhere in the passage. And they make a Greek argument for it. I understand it. I just don't agree with it. But they say there's no veil anywhere in in the passage. It's all hair. And and it's about a provocative hairstyle. So hair is the veil. Doug Wilson and David Garland. Here's what I want you to understand. No matter where you fall on the chart, everyone agrees on the timeless principle. Head covering truth number three. Wives, obey this passage by submitting to your husband's leadership. Wives, obey this passage by submitting to your husband's leadership. I would never tell anyone to submit to abusive leadership. If you are abused, get out. I want to give that qualifier before I unpack this. We submit to Christ. He does not oppress his people. He does not abuse them. This is not dictatorial dominion. Husbands should exercise their authority in love, not tyranny, like the father did with the son. Headship. Submitting to your husband is not oppressive or misogynistic. Affirming your husband's leadership is submitting to God's divine design. Don't minimize submission in marriage. Wives, this is the role God has called you to in your marriage. Mark Dever said, you could compare this refusing to wear the veil to refusing to wear a wedding ring or refusing to take the last name. That's a legit comparison, but you know it's more. What are you not submitting to your husband on right now? fighting him on this one issue. In the text, it was the veil. For you, what action is portraying a lack of submission to your husband? This is specifically in the gathering. There are many ways a wife can fail to honor her husband in public worship. Talk about him in a negative way. Say something sharp in a crowd of people. Head covering truth number four. Husbands, Obey this passage by leading your wife as you are commanded to lead her. Obey this passage by leading your wife as you are commanded to lead her. Kyle, my my wife doesn't want to be led. You don't know my wife. If she is a Christian, she will always struggle with submission because of the fall but the Holy Spirit in her will move her and is always moving her to submit to her husband. Young married men, you are to lead your home. This is not something that is old-fashioned. This is the gospel order. Don't talk to me about being gospel-centered when you are not leading your home. Head covering truth number five. Obey this passage by recognizing God's order in the church. Obey this passage by recognizing God's order in the church. These women in the church at Corinth were not honoring God's design for the church. They were not honoring God's design for leadership in the church. Paul is clear on this. It's not just a home issue. It was a church issue. They were grabbing for authority in the church. There is nothing regressive or dictatorial or heavy-handed in God's design for marriage or in his design for leadership in the church. When you question God's design, you question his character, his wisdom, and his competence. When you question God's design, you question his character, his wisdom, and his competence. If you can trust God for your salvation, you can trust God for gender roles within the home and the church. As a congregation, we are committed to a complementarian view of marriage. Men have headship in the home and leadership in the church. I recommend Grudem and Piper's book on this. And I also recommend one of our statements of faith on this. The church at Corinth was told in verse 2, You have kept my teaching. That's what a church wants to hear. They have kept God's teaching. If we were egalitarian, Paul could not say to us, You are holding fast to my teaching. If we allowed women to be pastors and elders or to teach and preach the corporate worship, Paul could not say to us, You are holding fast to my teaching. And you say, wait a minute, Kyle, I didn't know this church taught that. We do. We teach it because the Bible teaches it. And if you didn't know we taught it, then you've only been here for about three Sundays. You will hear this taught in women's Bible studies. We have a lady in our church who has been teaching women's Bible studies for longer than I've been alive. And she could not count on two hands how many times she has had to tell women in her studies You are just not submitting to your husband, and that is a sin. What are we communicating to non-Christians that come in here? That's what Paul wanted this church to think about. What message are you sending? This was a public meeting, and the church was communicating something to the world that was incorrect. Even when someone walks into the corporate gathering, God's order needs to be evident men leading. We must be zealous for the glory of God in corporate worship, and this is one way to do it. Head covering truth number six. This text is clearly a call for modesty among Christian women. This text is clearly a call for modesty among Christian women. In the first century, these ladies were using their attire to make a radical fashion statement in the church The issue at hand is attire in Christian worship, the adornment of women, modesty. The text is calling for women not to dress in a sexually promiscuous way. Modesty should be respected and promoted in the church. In our culture of self-expression, they will say, but that is how you show yourself as a liberated woman. And Paul says, do not buy into that. The world says that's healthy. God says it's unhealthy. Head covering truth number seven. This text leads us to celebrate gender distinctions. This text leads us to celebrate gender distinctions. In the text, Paul says there are clothing and hairstyles that communicate femininity. The men are not to display femininity in their clothing or hairstyle. That is the text. Don't wear the veil. Don't wear long hair. We are in a world where they minimize and blur gender distinctions. And we need to celebrate them. This is going to sound super old-fashioned. God wants a man to look like a man and a woman to look like a woman. That is the baseline of this passage. Hairstyles and dress may be different from culture to culture, but the need to show the distinction is not different. Hairstyles and dress may be different from culture to culture, but the need to show the distinction is not different. School-aged children. I want you to to look at me, you little ones. School-aged children. If your teacher tells you that you can choose your gender, the Bible says differently. God says differently. Creation says differently. The church is not to undermine gender distinctions. Gender is not socially constructed. It is garden constructed. Be bold in your culture that attempts to blend the genders. Don't be silent. Speak out. Historians tell us there was a large gay and lesbian community in Corinth. Transgenderism was a big thing there too. Cross-dressing was common by both genders. Winter, a cultural historian who wrote a book entitled The Influence of Secular Ethics and Social Change in Corinth, says The adult male inhabitants of Roman Corinth did not wear their hair long for to do so indicated their denial of masculinity and would be viewed as parading as homosexuals, end quote. Corinth was acting like these gender distinctions didn't exist. Women purposefully trying to look masculine, men purposefully trying to look feminine, When a culture is obscuring a distinction between male and female, we need to be celebrating it. There needs to be no gender blending or blurring or confusion in the church. Sexual differences are part of God's purposes in creation. And the pressure to dissolve gender distinctions is growing. This is nothing new, church. Don't let it shake you. It was happening back in the first century. Now let me list some radical transgressions against this text. Some radical transgressions against this text. Cutting off body parts. Men taking feminizing hormone hormone pills. Women taking masculinizing hormone pills. Wanting to be called she when God says you are a he. Those are radical transgressions against this text. On a personal level, thank God for your gender. Rejoice that God made you male or female. He didn't make a mistake. Rejoice in God's role for men and women in the church. He didn't make a mistake. Now, there is a line, and I know some of you have already caught on to that. There is a line in the text that I conveniently left unexposited. The line is women are prophesying. Now, I am going to wait to unpack that when we get to chapter 14 and marry it with the phrase, women should be silent in church. Women prophesying in church here, then he's saying women should be silent in church. I want to deal with both seemingly contradictory verses together as to not leave you with an unbalanced conclusion. So don't you dare think I'm skipping that. You think, like, you, everything I've dealt with today, you think I'm scared to deal with that? No. No. It's just going to work better for me to deal with it in chapter 14 when we've got seemingly contradictory phrases. All right, let's get after it. Honoring headship in public worship. We've looked at the timeless truth and the temporary expression. Honoring headship in public worship, the timeless truth, the temporary expression. Now we're going to look at honoring one another at the Lord's table. There are two movements. I could have called the two movements this, the best order for the church and the best meal for the world. Honoring one another at the Lord's table. Let's look at three things here. The abuses at the Lord's Supper, the meaning of the Lord's Supper, the reformation of the Lord's Supper. Paul's first going to deal with the abuses, then the meaning, then the reformation. Verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. Now, what they were doing was a distortion of the table. It was communion chaos. Your coming together to practice the table actually does more harm than good. Instead of proving constructive, it proves destructive. Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. There is a schismata. Schism among you. I partly believe it. Paul is not at all uncertain. This is a rhetorical device. Verse 19. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Factions are fine. If you have one faction, not an error. We do not want division in the church. Unless a group brings in error. Then the faithful must take a stand against the error. The church must endure this kind of division from time to time for the sake of purity. This is when a schismata has a a refining, purifying effect on the church. You could call it the debt we owe to heresy. This is the good done inadvertently by heretics. They do us good by provoking theologians to expand on the doctrine more accurately. God works through schismata to shift the church and bring out the true from the false. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. I don't know what you're doing, but it is not what Jesus commanded you to do. It doesn't even count for the supper. Churches can go through the motions of having the Lord's Supper, but it doesn't count. Your act of worship no longer counts as an act of worship. Now that's scary, isn't it? You can sing and listen to a sermon, but it be so out of step with what God designed, it doesn't even count as an act of worship. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Apparently, how this church celebrated the table was coming together for a big potluck. The wealthier members of the congregation provided most of the food. They brought the food and came early. The poor were forced to work on Sundays. They were slaves, probably two-thirds of the church was slaves. And by the time they finished work and came to the gathering, there was no food left. The upper crust Corinthians, the well to do members were your haves. The poor slave Corinthians were your have nots. And the haves were getting together early and they were crushing the buffet line. Some people in the church grow out, go out hungry and, and some have to be carried out drunk. <laughs> There's always hope for a church. They were getting DWIs coming out of the church. D-D-W-I, driving donkeys while impaired. (laughs) This is not a bar. This is a church. This is not a buffet line. This is the Lord's table. When they go to take communion, they're not thinking about Jesus. They're thinking about themselves. And this was likely the only meal some of these poor had all week. This division followed economic and social lines. Verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. They were humiliating the poor. By the time the poor arrived... The prime rib was gone and and nothing was left but crackers and squirt cheese. Paul unleashes a blistering interrogation, question after question. I would never have believed you would have stooped to that level. You can't treat your brothers and sisters in Christ like this. Paul uh, Paul highlights their insensitive behavior of the social elites, the, the abuse at the table. This is how the world Does tables. This is not how the Lord does his table. Your activity is virtually indistinguishable from a Corinth banquet. Their behavior marginalized members in the church. They didn't understand there is no rich or poor when we come to the table. We are all beggars. Now, people sometimes say to me, in the New Testament, The the Lord's table was a big feast, and it looked nothing like what you guys do today. Here, it was a big feast, and Paul rebuked them. He said, this is not what it should look like. This is not a dinner party. The purpose of the table is not to fill your stomach. That's not the purpose. You have a kitchen at home for that. You have a restaurant down the street for that. The purpose of this meal is not to fill your stomachs. This this does not need to be a massive potluck. That's not the point of the meal. This is a picture meal, not an actual meal. This is a picture meal, not an actual meal. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. Bread. Paul is taking the church now back to the instruction manual. They are out of step with the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And he brings them back to our our Lord's very words of institution. Jesus handed it to the 12 disciples on the night he was betrayed. Jesus instituted this at night. Many churches only observe it at night. Verse 24. And when Jesus had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And I'm completely depending on the Holy Spirit to make this come alive to you. Jesus wanted the church to mentally reenact the redemptive experience. The meal is dramatic actualization of placing ourselves there. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, I was. The Lord's table is a little drama of Christ's broken body. You break the bread to show the painfulness of Christ's death. He went through agony. This bread, the text says, represents Christ's body for you. The atoning value of Christ's death is for you. He is emphasizing the vicarious work of Christ. What took place took place for you. Verse 25, in the same way Jesus took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. There is symbolism in our observance. There are various spiritual truths conveyed to our physical senses. The bread is the emblem of his body. The cup is the emblem of his blood. We remember that his death was violent and bloody. He died by wounding. We we take notice that his blood covers all our sin. The Lord's Supper is savoring the new covenant that binds people together. Paul understands Christians to be members of a covenant community in covenant relationship with one another. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is an important element not found in many places in the New Testament. The Lord's Supper is preaching. Calvin spoke of the Supper as the visible word. You tell the old, old story over and over until he comes. Every time you do this, you reenact the crucifixion. The Lord's table is an evangelism meeting. It is the gospel in picture. John Piper says we proclaim it to ourselves to sustain faith and we proclaim it to non-believers to awaken faith. The gospel Made visible. When you go to this table, we are preaching hope to one another. He's coming soon. Trust him and press on. Christ is enough, dear sister. Press on. He's going to sustain you, dear brother. Keep pressing on. These promises are edible and tangible. Grab hold of them. This meal is both somber and celebratory. It's not either or. It's both and. We are remembering a death that's solemn, that's serious, that's contemplative. We are anticipating a second coming that's celebratory, cheerful, exciting. We come now to the reformation of the Lord's Supper. The reformation of the Lord's Supper. Paul gives a roadmap to correct the abuse. Apparently, God's church through the ages tends to gravely err in their celebration of the Lord's Supper. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. You say, Kyle, I'm I'm not worthy enough to come to the table. I'm always unworthy. What is this text talking about? This statement is not intending to exclude those who have sinned. It's aimed at excluding those who do not care they have sinned. There are no perfect people sitting at the Lord's table. We are all debtors to grace. The Lord's Supper is not for perfect people. For perfect people don't need the atonement. If the table of Christ were only for perfect people, it would be a table for one. Jesus. Although the Lord's Supper is for sinners, it is not for impenitent sinners. Verse 28. Let a person examine himself, then and so eat the bread, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is a call to self examination before taking the table. You can't say, I remember when Jesus died for my sin, and at the same time, you're nurturing your sin. They ate and drank and continued to oppress the poor. Do not touch this table if you're harboring division or resentment. The Lord's table is supposed to build unity, not break it. It births unity. Canadian theologian Don Carson says, the church is made up of natural enemies. This is why we need the table. There is grace in the Lord's supper for a fractured community. The table is supposed to systematically dismantle disunity. If baptism is our wedding vows... The Lord's Supper is the renewal of those wedding vows. The church at Corinth were gathering together to commemorate a principle they were unwilling to practice. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. They will be held accountable. They will answer for their actions. With the very act of eating and drinking, they call judgment on themselves. Verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul relays the warning. This is God performing church discipline because the church refuses to. This is God fencing the table because the church refused to. Carelessness with the table leads to dead people around the table. Churches do not need to minimize the seriousness of violating the Lord's Supper. Spiritual sin can result in physical judgment. We fence the table here because we are protecting you in light of these serious warnings. Some people are sick because they kept taking communion without really being repentant. Some of you are visiting. Don't ever be a part of a church that doesn't fence the table. Verse 31. But if we judge ourselves, truly, we would not be judged. But we are judged by the Lord. We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You would not be exposed to this if you evaluated your soul before coming to the table. If we properly take care of things, then God doesn't have to step in. If the Corinthians took time to evaluate themselves, none of this would have happened. 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. (laughs) Here's a thought. Before stuffing your gullet, wait for the poor. Then, when you come together, it won't be for judgment. It won't be for the worse anymore. It will now, in fact, be for the better 34 if anyone is hungry and after this sermon the church is saying amen you're preaching a long time I got a little bit more left if anyone is hungry let him eat at home so that when you come together it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come Paul like me knew they can't handle anymore if you want to be full of food, stay home. If you want to be full of the Lord, come on. The message of the meal is everything. The amount of the meal is nothing. The purpose is not to satisfy physical hunger but spiritual hunger. Why is everything so small, Kyle? Because this isn't meant to fill you up. Only to sustain you until the final meal. When Jesus returns. Now that would be a perfect place just to end. But I continue to typically go past those moments. So I have two quick truths for you. Lord's table truths. Two quick rapid fire. Okay, The Lord's table truth number one. Non-Christian, we would love for you to come eat at our table. But do not eat at the Lord's table. Non-Christian, I know some of you. I do not know some of you we would love for you to come eat at our table, but do not eat at the Lord's table. We will eat with you in our home. We will go to a restaurant with you after the service. We really do desire to share tables with you. But not this table. This table is an insider table. It just is. No other door is closed for you here. Except that door. By you watching and not partaking, this is to remind you that you are still not reconciled to God. If you have fallen under conviction during the spoken message, or if you do during the visual message, and then right there in your seat you just repent of your sins and run to Christ right there then come and talk to the pastors about it after so we can rejoice with you and and talk to you about the next steps and how to be prepared for the table next time. We will have a pastor at that door, a pastor at that door, and two pastors at the front. When everyone gets up in a moment to come to the table, I just want you to watch. Just watch. Lord's table truth number two. This is a local church meal, not a family unit meal. This is a local church meal, not a family unit meal. The location of the table in the scriptures always seems to be the gathering of the local church. Not involving parts of the church, but all of the church. This is not something you do privately. It's something we do publicly when we gather as a body. We used to have couples around here who would say, Kyle, we're going we're to do the Lord's table tonight at our house. No. You have no biblical grounds for that. When we shut down for COVID, we did not encourage you to take the table at home. Why? Because this should happen when the church gathers. We don't have small groups celebrating the Lord's table. We don't have seminars celebrating the Lord's table. We don't have youth groups doing it. Subsets of the church should not take the Lord's table, it is a body.